Thanks for tuning in to the Met Church Podcast. Here at the Met, we are all about connecting people to God and one another. If you have any questions or want more information about what's going on here at the church, then head to our website at metchurch.com. We would love to stay connected with you throughout the week through social media, so be sure to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Now, enjoy the message. Good to see all of you this morning. On the eighth day, God created Amazon Prime. Do you believe that's true? How many of you utilized that little service over the last few days? Yes. How many of you ordered something and you didn't remember what you ordered until you opened the box? You had that experience? Me too, Mark. I just didn't know I was as happy and surprised as I was when I first ordered it. It was just great. And, uh, but I, I don't know, man. The clock is ticking. How many of you are done? You're just like, I am absolutely done. I'm finished. Look at you overachievers. Way to go. Way to go. How many of you are close? You're not, you're not quite there, but you're close. You're not sweating it, right? We got a few? All right, now here's the third one. How many of you haven't really even gotten started yet? Is there any of you here like that? Holy cow, every service we've had people like that. You're fine, you got all the time in the world, don't worry about it, don't sweat it. I'm glad to see you guys here. You know, one of the things we always do this time of the year is we really try to find the perfect gift, right? What is, what is the thing that they want? What is the thing they need? What is the thing we could buy them that maybe they wouldn't buy themselves? What is that, that perfect gift? I was thinking about it, uh, I remember the first time my mom and dad uh, released me to go shopping on my own. When I was just a little kid, I had a Christmas budget of about $20, right? And I was gonna go out and buy my Christmas gifts. And there was a shopping center not far from where I grew up called Seminary South. Now, I don't know how many Fort Worth natives we have in the room, I'm a Fort Worth kid, but when you grow up in Fort Worth, they teach you two things. They teach you, number one, you're to love God, and number two, you're to hate Dallas. <laughs> so that's kind of the zone we were in. So we, we were uh, down there at uh, the Seminary South in Murphy Shopping uh, Department Store. And I remember, man, I had money in my pocket. I was ready to go. I was so pumped. I was going to find the perfect gift. I never will forget, I found my mom a chrome butter dish. Oh, son, that was sweet. Your reflection in it. I knew my mother is going to love this. I tried to find the perfect gift for my dad. You know what I got him? Never will forget it. High karate. Huh? Wow, look out, man, high karate. That's right up there next to Old Spice. That's some good stuff. I got my sister a twister game, a twister game. And then I got my little brother, you know, cause he's young, he didn't know what was going on. I got him a bag of army men for a dollar. <laughs> so I pocketed a little cash on that kid. But I was so excited, I say all that to say how excited I was, one of my first memories of Christmas where I actually was more excited about what they were getting than what I was getting. I was so excited about seeing them unwrap these gifts. And of course, they, were, they played along, they were so excited about what I, you know. It was just a great memory. And I remember what our Lord said on one occasion. He said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, he was not saying it's not blessed to receive. He was saying if, if you love give, uh, uh, receiving, you're gonna really love giving. And this time of the year, I think we all understand that value. And I hope you guys have an amazing and incredible Christmas together as a family, as friends. I hope God just blesses you and you make some wonderful memories because really, this season is about the greatest gift God ever gave to mankind, the gift of his son. And in this series, we've been examining a prophecy concerning that gift. It's in Isaiah chapter nine, verse six. Each week we've been looking at a different aspect of the coming of our Messiah, our Savior, our King. And the Bible says in Isaiah nine, six, unto us 
This child is born. Now again, that is Christmas. It is what we're celebrating. It is a child born. It is the infinite who became an infant. It is the day Jesus Christ stepped from heaven and he took on a robe of flesh to be born of a virgin, born in a manger, so that he being the perfect sacrifice of God could carry our sins away one day to the cross and could reconnect a fallen mankind to a holy and just God. So he was God's gift. He was a child born. And then not only that, he was a son given. Well, the child born speaks of Christmas and a son given speaks of the next big day that most people will be back to church. That's Easter. <laughs> On one hand, you have the poinsettias that'll be here tomorrow. And the other hand, we'll have the lilies that I'll see them in April. And so you have these two great events in Christianity where you have Christmas, a son, a child born. You have Easter, uh, a son that is given. Remember in John 3, 16, for a God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, a son given that whosoever believes in him would never perish but have eternal everlasting life and so we have this beautiful prophecy of Jesus Christ coming into the world a child born who would be a son given now the next section of this has not yet occurred the Bible says the government one day will be on his shoulders now I believe that speaks of the millennial reign one day of Jesus on the earth when the government of the world is finally on the shoulders of our Lord now that's not yet the case we don't see the governments of this world on the shoulders of our Savior. One day that'll happen. Until that happens, the practical application of that expression, I would think, is simply this. The government of my life needs to be on his shoulders. The control of my life needs to be on his shoulders. I could take some stress off of some of you this morning if you would resign from your universe and put Jesus in charge. If you would just step away from controlling everything that comes into your life and you just say, God, I can't, you can, so you are now in charge, right? And allow the government of your life to now be on his shoulders. Now, the most common name that we know our Savior by is Jesus. In fact, in Matthew 1, 21, the angel said concerning this child born, this son given, this one that the government one day would be on his shoulders, you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus means the saving one, the saving one. It is the greatest thing you and I needed. We needed a savior, born alienated from God, born in sin, separated from God, as Paul would write, at enmity with God. We needed a savior. We could not save ourselves. So Jesus comes into the world as the saving one. And then he is known not only Jesus, he's known as Jesus Christ. Christ means the atoning one. It speaks of his priestly ministry. We have a high priest this morning. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says, our high priest can be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, where he was in all points tempted as we are, yet he is without sin. So you have a high priest. The Bible said he ever lives to make intercession for us. So Jesus is the saving one. Christ is the atoning one. He makes atonement. Now, now that word, if you break that word apart, simplistically we could say it means to make us one with the Father at one month. Atonement is a way to think about that. So he's Jesus who saves us. He's our Christ who brings us into fellowship with God. And then he is the Lord, Jesus Christ, the Lord. Now, when the Bible was translated into our English back in 1611, King James authorized that. And during that time, they had lords and 
ladies, right? So a common word that was used to describe the role that God is to have in our life is this role of Lord. Now we don't have lords and ladies now, but we do have leaders. We have bosses, we have people we look up to who we follow, who have influence over our life. And so the expression to bring it into our vernacular today would simply mean that Jesus Christ is the leader of my life. He's large and in charge that he uh, is directing me and my path and all that I do. And when I understand him coming into the world as God's gift, he's his gift to save me. He's his gift to make intercession for me. He's his gift to, make, uh, to lead me in the path that I should go. What a beautiful gift that Jesus is to us all. And the Bible says this savior will be called wonderful. What a beautiful way to try to describe who he is. He's wonderful. Uh, the idea is there's no one, there's nothing that compare to him. He is wonderful. And not only is he wonderful, he's counselor. We talked about that idea. The fact that you can rely on him, you can listen to him, you can lean into him, you can look to him. His counsel is great. You never have to worry about what he advises you to do because he will substantiate it and support it from his word. And so when the Holy Spirit directs you or leads you, he will support what he's telling you to do with scripture. And you have this incredible, reliable, uh, undeniable counsel from God's word. So if you're not listening to him this morning, I highly, remind, uh, highly recommend you start. Uh, in fact, many of us ought to just simply say, Lord, speak to my heart for I am listening. Instead of saying, Lord, listen, because I'm speaking, right? So here he is a, a counselor. And then the third thing we looked at last week, he is a mighty God. A mighty God. He's mighty to save. Listen, he's not just mighty. I'll go so far to say he's almighty. There is absolutely nothing he cannot do. You and I are limited. We are a limited resource. We're limited physically. We're limited materially. We're, we're limited emotionally. You and I are limited resources, but he has no limits. There's nothing he can't do. There's no ex extent to which he cannot go. There is nothing that you bring to him that he cannot handle. Think about your mighty God in this way. There's no sin that you can commit that he cannot forgive. From time to time, I hear people say, oh, well, what about that unpardonable sin? The Bible speaks of a sin that he will not forgive. That's true. What is then the unpardonable sin? The Bible refers to it as blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. What is that? It is the sin that is described as trampling under your feet the blood of Christ as though it means nothing. The unpardonable sin is to reject the drawing of the Holy Spirit to the Savior. You see, when the Holy Spirit came into this world, when Jesus ascended, the Spirit descended. And one of the primary roles of the Holy Spirit in the lives of people who do not yet know Jesus is to convince you that you need to know him. It is to convict you that you are a sinner without him. It is to bring you to a point where you will finally say, Lord, I'm gonna stop trying, I'm gonna start trusting with all that I am and all that I know about me. I'm gonna trust all that you are and all that I know about you. And you come to that moment. Well, what brings you to that moment? It's the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, a person can reject that. In fact, in Genesis 5, there's a warning that says, my spirit will not always strive with a man. Meaning God will extend so many opportunities and at some point a person can reject Jesus and literally reject him from the, the last time. Where he'll say, okay, that's not my will, it's your will. You don't want a relationship with me, I'm not gonna force you into this, so I won't bother you about that anymore. 
And for a person to go out into eternity denying Jesus and never receiving him and to rejecting the work of the Holy Spirit as he tries to draw you to the saving side of the Savior, uh, for a person to die in that condition, God said, that's a sin I will not forgive. The sin of your own unbelief. But can I tell you, everything below that line is forgiven. It's forgiven. I'm just suggesting to you that whatever sin you may have committed, he can forgive you. A beautiful chapter that you should read sometime if you're struggling with this is Romans chapter eight. And in Romans chapter eight, he, he talks about the fact uh, that there's therefore now, it opens with there's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. He doesn't condemn you. What is it that makes you feel condemned? It's when you make mistakes. When you sin, you feel God's condemned you. He said, I'm not condemning you. Your sins are covered. You've been forgiven. There's no condemnation. In fact, he says, not only is there no condemnation, he said there should be no guilt. Romans chapter eight again, he said, who shall lay anything to the charge of my elect? Meaning who can accuse you of anything that I've already forgiven you from? (laughs) I've shared this with you before, but you have to learn the difference between Holy Spirit conviction and unholy spirit accusation. The Holy Spirit of God will convict you and me of sin we have not yet confessed. It's his job. And what do you do when he does? Just name it and nail it. First John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So once he illuminates an area of my life that I need to deal with, my job is to go before God and say, I confess. I made him say, I'm sorry. What does the word confess mean? It means agreement. That's all the word means. It means, God, you're right, I was wrong, I did this, I shouldn't have, you said not to, and I did it anyway. So you and I are in agreement, we're like that now. (laughs) And so you have this idea that he he will then forgive us. He's promised in his word that he will forgive us. So this idea then, Holy Spirit convicts me of things I've not yet confessed. Listen, the unholy spirit, get the difference, accuses me of things I've already confessed. See the difference? The Bible says concerning the evil one, he is the, quote, accuser of brothers and the accuser of sisters. He accuses you. You you know why it works? Because we're typically guilty of what he's accusing us of. (laughs) We're guilty, we've generally done that. That's why we have that guilty look on our face. We're guilty. (laughs) But the problem is we don't go back to the point and say, but I've already confessed that, right? We keep beating ourselves up about something God has forgiven us of. So I'm saying when you open up Romans chapter eight, understand once you've dealt with this and God has forgiven you, forgive yourself. Because he no longer condemns you and you should not feel guilt. And then the third value of Romans eight is there's no separation. Who shall separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus? And then he names all the things that could possibly separate us. And he says height or depth or angels or principalities, nothing shall be able to separate us from him. So ladies and gentlemen, I'm just suggesting you this morning that when you know Jesus Christ as your savior and you're in a relationship with him, that relationship is eternal, it is everlasting. In fact, that's the value we're gonna look at this morning when he says he is the everlasting father. As a God, there's no sin you cannot, he, that you've committed he cannot forgive. As God, there's no burden you carry that he cannot lift. As God, there's no problem you face that he cannot solve. He's a mighty God. But I want you to see as as we wrap this up this morning, how he's also an everlasting father. Now God, we may shrink back a little bit from him because he's mighty, he's almighty, he's powerful, he's God. Man, he's in control of everything. 
He stepped one day from nowhere. He stood on nothing and he spoke everything in existence and it stays there because he tells it to. <laughs> He's mighty. He's God. So sometimes we step back away from him and we, we just see him in the role as God, but we fail to see him as father. He said he's not only a mighty God, but get this, he's an everlasting father. There's a relationship there. There is a connection there. It's not just that we stand in reverence and awe of his power, which we should, but we also approach him with a familiarity and a comfort knowing he loves me. He is my, my father. That's why when Jesus came on the scene, he was changing the way people prayed because people were intimidated to approach God. They saw him simply as a mighty God. And the rabbis of that day said, man, if you want this mighty God to, heal you, uh, to hear you when you pray, you better pray the right prayer at the right time and you better put all the adjectives in the right place or God's gonna say, talk to the hand, loosely translated. And so they ended up having special prayers for special days. They had special prayers for special events. In fact, I found one prayer, one prayer had 63 adjectives in front of the name of God. Now, did that just blow your hat in the creek? What if I told you today that before you could get whatever it is you're praying for, you have to memorize the 63 adjectives in front of the name of God and not only get those things right, get them in the right order, pray at the right time, and assume the right position. You would be as frustrated as many people were in the first century because many qu people quit praying. Because they made it out to be something that only a quote professional could do. And Jesus came on the scene and go, well, this is way too complicated. Man, when you pray, he's your father, Abba. It just means dad, daddy, it's father. I don't know how many of you have raised kids or you're still raising kids, but let me tell you, as a father, my kids never had problems asking me for anything, ever. In fact, if I didn't double check my wallet in the morning, I might find they have lifted whatever cash I had in there without me even knowing it. You ever have that? Those little stealthy ninjas when they're little boogers running around the house? I've never had one of my kids come to me and say, oh, thou great, powerful, majestic father who inhabits the cab of thy truck without bequeath to this thy child a $20 bill. <laughs> never happened. Most time I'd find out, as I said, they've already lifted the money they needed earlier in the day and I'm finding out about it later. Why? It's not that they didn't respect me. They did, but they knew me. They knew I loved them. I'm gonna take care of them. They didn't have to worry about that. You know, there's a law on the books in the state of Texas that says if you don't take care of your kids, they'll take them away from you. You know why that law's there? It's there for stupid people. <laughs> Can you believe that you have to have a law to tell you to take care of your kids? Most people don't have to have that. In a little while, we're gonna break huddle and we're gonna go, you, some of you will collect your kids over there at Met Kids and you're probably gonna feed them, right? Here's what I know about you. You're not gonna feed those kids, because you're not gonna look at your spouse and go, gotta feed them, they're gonna take them away from us. Somebody's gonna report it. I'm gonna have to feed that little, I fed him this morning and they're hungry again. You know why? It's not the law that is driving you to take care of your kids. There's a higher law called the law of love. You don't do what you do for your kids because you feel that you have to, though you have to. <laughs> you do what you do for your kids because you love to. God doesn't do what he does for us because he feels some obligation to us because we're his. He does what he does for us because he absolutely loves us. 
That's why Jesus said, you go to your father with a familiarity, you say, dad, I'm struggling, I need this, help me with this. He is an everlasting father. When the country was founded, one of our founding fathers identified himself as a deist, a deist. And there's many people who might not identify as a deist, but in philosophy, you might embrace the idea. And that is that you believe in God and you believe he created everything. But once he created everything, he kind of put the world on a track like a train going around the Christmas tree. And now he steps back and he just watches it as a kind of a disinterested um, uh, uh, observer, right? He's distant deity. It's a deist. There are a lot of people who believe that because they don't engage God and they say, oh, I'm, you know, he would never <laughs> stoop to care about someone like me and he would never be interested in the little things that I'm interested in. And what I've come to terms with is God is, he is uh, transcendent. He is above everything. He is that God, but listen, he's also imminent. When Paul was writing, he said, God is above all and God is also in all. So God can be above everything and be in everything too. He can be both transcendent while he is imminent. So he can be a mighty God and also be an everlasting father. You see how that works? He can be a mighty God in the sense I stand in reverence and awe of his power and ability and know he can forgive sin and he can lift burdens and he can solve problems. He's God, but he's also my father. He cares. And there's two or three things I wanna leave you on that note and we'll go home. Number one, this also involves, and it's so important to understand, it is an unending promise. His presence is an unending promise. The Bible says he's an everlasting father, unending. I say that because relationships fail. We talk about God as a father and the Bible speaks to him often as a father. Some people recoil because you didn't have a good father. Maybe you would use the Facebook terminology and say, when it comes to my dad, it's complicated. <laughs> Relationship is complicated. So even when you hear someone like me refer to God as a father, you have to kind of navigate through stuff because you had a bad experience with the father. You had some difficulty with the father. But I just recommend to you thinking this morning that God is the perfect father. He is everything you would have hoped for and have prayed for and have desired to have in a father. He meets all the criteria. In fact, it's a beautiful idea to realize that God is available to us. He is accessible to us. He is here for us. In 11, uh, Hebrews 11, verse five, I shared this a couple of weeks ago in one of the services where he talks about this idea that I will never leave you or forsake you, right? It's an unending promise. I'm with you. I'll never leave you or forsake you. And to leave and forsake are two different things. To leave means I will never remove my presence from you. To forsake means I will never emotionally disconnect from you. Now listen, as human beings, that's the only way we relate to one another. We are either physically in each other's presence or we are emotionally connected to one another. If you're not physically connected to someone or emotionally connected to someone, there's no relationship there. We call that strangers. <laughs> but I'm suggesting that when you're in relationship with someone, that means you're either in their presence or even not, maybe not in their presence, you're still emotionally connected to them. Here's what I know. You can be physically away from someone you are emotionally connected to. Some of you are emotionally connected to someone you're not sitting with this morning. 
but there's an emotional connection. Maybe it's a child somewhere, a relative, a loved one, someone in the military, someone somewhere else. You are physically absent, but you're emotionally connected, right? And conversely, there are people who can be physically in the presence of someone, they are emotionally disconnected from them, right? It's kind of the death of a relationship. And God is saying, when I understand, we understand those two values of a relationship, the physical and the emotional, he's saying, I will never remove my presence from you, neither will I emotionally disconnect from you. That is an unending promise. In fact, in Timothy, 1 Timothy, he says, even though we should deny him, he cannot deny himself. When the Holy Spirit came into your life and he sealed you and he became a part of who you are and who I am, God can, can no more deny himself than he could deny you. You belong to him and he to you. It is an unending promise. Second thought. It involves an unending provision. An unending provision. It means whatever you need, he has the ability to provide. Materially, emotionally, physically, what do you need? Someone wrote on a wall one time, Jesus is the answer. Someone came and kind of facetiously wrote, well, if he's the answer, what's the question? <laughs> and then a third person came along and wrote, he's the answer to every question. Right on. <laughs> whatever you're struggling with, he's the answer. Whatever the need is, he's the answer. By the way, he's the only thing that matters, the only person that matters in eternity. You and I can agree and disagree on a lot of things. Doctrinally, theologically, we can agree politically, we can agree and disagree on a lot of things, but the one thing that would determine eternity is not what church you attended, not what doctrine you embrace, not what political persuasion you held, not what status you achieved in life, the one thing that he's gonna to want to know is what did you do with Jesus? You receive him or reject him? And I just suggest to you this morning, he's the most significant thing, the most significant person in my life. And so he is an eternal, everlasting father. He is able to meet the deepest need of our life. Listen to this verse, Luke 11, verse 11. Which of you fathers, if your son asked for a fish, would he give him a serpent? Now, there's humor in the Bible, you, if you read it like I do. That's kind of funny to me. When a son comes to his dad to say they're camping, and he goes, Dad, I want a sandwich, and the dad hands him a rattlesnake, right? I mean, can you imagine? I mean, you're saying there's no way that would ever happen. Well, that was his point. He's, Jesus is by this his illustration. So he, he's using this extreme illustration to say, when you love your kids, you would never give them something knowingly that would harm them. And then he went on to say, if you who are imperfect would not give your child a serpent when he asked for a, a bread, how much more your heavenly father who's perfect would not give you something you don't need? What am I saying? I'm saying there are times when you pray that you may feel like he's answered you with a snake instead of a sandwich. <laughs> There's gonna be experiences you'll go through in life where you thought, I just got the snake when I was praying for the sandwich. But I'm just suggesting to you that God loves you and he is a provider for you and he will never allow or give or permit anything into your world that is not according to his plan and that will not ultimately work for your good and his glory. Go back to Romans 8, 28, for we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called to his purpose. Not all things are good, but all things can work for good. Do you have that? 
So let's track an unending promise, an unending provision. Here's the last one, we'll go home. An unending protection. An unending protection. Jesus said, all that the Father has given me are in my hand and no one can pluck them out of my hand. You're in his hand. You know what that means when you realize I'm in the hand of God? That means to get to you, it has to go through him. You and I enjoy a protection. Uh, We have the protection of Almighty God in all that we do and all that we venture out to try to achieve. We have the promise. Someone said it's the surely goodness and mercy that follows me all the day of my life. What is that, Psalm 23? And certainly that's true. God's goodness and his mercy follows us, his protection. A few days ago, I did a, a memorial service for a 16-year-old young man who passed away in our church. He had received Jesus in our student ministry, had leukemia. In fact, it's Mary and Derek's uh, nephew. And so we did the service, and in his service here, I talked a little bit about Ecclesiastes 3, and I just wanna close sharing this with you, what I shared with them. In Ecclesiastes 3, Solomon was writing kind of the summary of what life really is. He says, to everything there is a season, a time to every purpose under heaven. Time to be born, a time to die. And in that Ecclesiastes 3, he talks about life as a season. Now we're in a season, it's a Christmas season, right? Hope it's a good season for you, happy season. But we're also in a different season. Some of us are empty nesters, that's a season. Some of you have those little boogers at your house right now, that's a season. Some of you haven't yet found the the right person yet, you're just an unclaimed blessing right now, but you're in a season. But everybody is in a season of life. So he says, we go through seasons, there's a season, and then there is, he said, a time to every purpose. Now here's what I know. As long as God has a purpose for you, he'll give you time. As long as you have a purpose, you have time. You know what happens when someone leaves us? Their purpose ended. He was ready to call them home. My time on this earth is connected to my purpose, and as long as God has something for me to do, he's gonna leave me here but he won't leave me here one skinny minute longer than is absolutely necessary for me to achieve what he sent for me to do. So I'm saying, guys, you're protected. I'll go so far out on this little limb to say you are immortal until God's finished with you. I won't tell you you're bulletproof because I want you to do something stupid and blaming me. I'm just saying, until God is finished with you, you're not going anywhere. That's why one of my life verses is Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. He didn't say not to have understanding. He said, be careful leaning too hard on it. You know what understanding is? Understanding is the truth you stand under. My understanding is limited to my knowledge and I'm not the smartest guy in the world. So I'm constantly learning and as I learn, my understanding expands, but right now my understanding is limited to what I know, what I've experienced. That's why he's saying, be be careful when you lean too heavily on your own understanding. You don't have the facts. You don't know everything there is to know. So conversely, instead of just relying on understanding and your own intellect and getting wrapped up in your own pride, he says, trust the Lord. Just trust him. The God who seldom explains himself. The God who is the mighty God, but the everlasting father. Trust him. Lean not too heavily on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And here's the promise. I'll make your path straight. One person said it's kind of like a, walking through a jungle with someone in front of you, a guide with a machete that's just clearing out the brushes and the branches, making sure your path is clear. 
the psalmist said, he is a buckler to them who trust in him. One of the old scholars I read after said a buckler was much what we would call today the cattle catch on the front of the old steam engine trains. Remember, you see the old cattle catch out there and it was designed literally to knock animals off the track so the train could stay on the track. And it had a buckler, they called it. It was out in front of it. And when an animal or something would be on the track, it would hit it, clear it from the track so the train would stay uh, on, on, in, in, in the right position on the track. He said, I'm a buckler. I'm somebody that'll go before you, clearing the trail for you so you don't get knocked off track. I just say as I close this morning, if you don't know him, I highly recommend him. He is a mighty God. He's an everlasting father. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word that never returns void. I pray for my friends here this morning, those who are watching maybe who've never trusted you. They know you're here. They know you're powerful. They know you're awesome. They see you as God, but they've never known you as a father. I pray this might be the moment when they humble their hearts and they say, Lord Jesus, come into my life, forgive my sin. I do believe you died on the cross. I do believe you rose on Easter and with all that is in me now, I trust you. For others, Lord, who know you, but they're just going through a hard experience in life. May they know, Father, you'll never leave them. You'll never forsake them. May they know you're available to provide all that they need. May they know you're here to protect them, to guard and to guide them. And so Lord, I pray this season would be a wonderful season, wonderful memories, a wonderful time of worship and celebration. And for those Lord who need someone to encourage them before they go, I pray as soon as I dismiss, they'll make their way here to the front, allow one of our workers to spend a few minutes to pray for them and encourage them. Then Lord, we pray for those three services tomorrow but again, you'd fill this place with people who need you. We're excited about these three very different and unique services and what we experience today. And we're just praying even now that you would anoint this place with your presence. Thank you, Lord, for the joy of knowing Jesus and for the absolute joy it is to make you known. In your name I pray, amen. Have a great rest of your Sunday. God bless you.